everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders through the lens of the week's news and try to figure out who is stepping in it and who is getting it right this time. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. This week, we're going to start with our news rundown. Lots of things going on, including strikes ending and strikes starting, some great economic news, OpenAI's dev conference, just so much great things to talk about. And we're going to deep dive into the right to repair movement and how to create psychological safety at work continues to be important. Yes. And then, of course, we're going to end with good things for the week so we can send everyone off on a good note. So let's start with how are you doing, Adriel? I am doing okay. I am much better this week. Last week was heavy. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was traveling for a client and it was like a last minute request. It turned out well, I will say that. I, I went and did a, a workshop. But much like the work that I've been doing, it ended up turning into sort of like a focus group. And I've do, been doing these focus groups with employee resource groups, ERGs across a couple of different companies. And They've just been really heavy and I've been doing this for years, years, years. Yeah. I, like I, I have my methods for, you know, kind of decompressing after, but th- something about this round of focus groups has just been a lot heavier. Um, obviously, yeah. we have the war that's going on. There's so much economic change and there's shifts happening. People are still trying to adjust to return to office. Organizations are still unsure of what makes sense, what's fair. And so I've just been hearing a lot of insights from people. And a lot of these sessions that I've been sitting in on have resulted in people crying. So it was just, it was a heavy week. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I had to kind of step away for a bit. Yeah. I feel like we talked about this a few weeks ago that your role as a DEI consultant can sometimes be like an in-office therapist Mm -hmm. because all the emotional work that you do. Yeah. But that also shouldn't be your job. So it's, that is, that's a tough needle to thread. I know. Yeah. And and it's funny because people do actually say that either in the focus groups or the one-on-ones. They're like, I feel like this is a therapy session. And I'm like, well, not quite because I'm, I'm generally just there asking questions and I take notes and I try to gather as many insights to look for themes. But I'm not in those sessions. I'm not making suggestions. The, I, the idea is yeah. to come up with any solutions. But it can be really emotional, especially if you ask the right questions and people are like, wow, I hadn't thought about that or considered that. And it really, we talk about DEI data a lot, a lot. And I think people are so focused on the quantitative data still. And what is the percent of people that feel this way and that look like this and identify this way? But what really helps you when it comes to the data is the qualitative side of things and pairing that with the quantitative side so that you can say, hey, we looked at, I don't know, women with disabilities that are mid-level managers and they are reporting back that they're experiencing this feeling or this sentiment, yeah. right? And that is so much more powerful than just looking at data sets and numbers. Yeah. And but you can only really get good <laughs> qualitative data if you've created psychological safety so people feel comfortable sharing, which yes, goes which back we're gonna, to your deep dive. We're, we're talking about it today. Yes. It's just been a while. Little, just a little <laughs> preview. Yeah. Well, we had, we had a couple of weeks of big news. Obviously, last, last week, we were focused exclusively on politics with Dr. Danielle Thompson. Great episode if you want to go mm-hmm. back and be frightened and I think encouraged <laughs> at the same time about the state of American politics and how yeah. to interpret conservative media versus progressive media. It's fascinating. Mm. But um, in the meantime, there was a great jobs report that came out this month. We had inflation data saying inflation is cooling. So the economy is looking like it's going in the right direction, which might favor Biden. I don't know how much voters like feel it. This is a thing is like we were talked about last week is despite the mostly positive direction of the economy. Mm -hmm. I don't know that people feel it in their everyday lives because of the lasting effects of inflation. And, yeah. you know, necessarily get Biden credit for that. So that, that's a tough spot that it's putting him in. But yeah, it's going it's going well. <laughs> yeah. OK, we'll see how that goes. I, it's just so interesting. I, I did see that. Re- I read through a couple of articles about that. But then I think uh, less than a week ago, there was an article talking about how a bunch of Americans are tapping into their retirement savings for oh, yeah. hardship withdrawal. So it's. To your point, Tapping I think we're retirement, maxing out our credit yeah, cards. Like yeah. it's been a rough couple of years. Car payments are behind. It's it's not looking so great. So I, yeah, so many questions. But yeah, yeah, we'll see there's a happens. lot we could unpack there. But yeah. in the meantime, 
we're less than a year out and I'm hoping the economy gets a little better. Biden gets a little credit for it. That's just my personal mm-hmm. preference. You know, I'd rather have someone say, hey, the economy is slightly better. I'm going to vote for Biden. Then I'm going to flirt with fascism. Oof. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> what we had this week, which we didn't get to talk about last week, isn't ha- hadn't happened yet, is all the news stories around Trump calling the people that don't like him vermin, which uh, is a direct fascist quote calling back to history intentionally but yeah let's not get into that instead let's talk about all the strike news and union news so mm-hmm. we had last week the actor strike finally coming to an end not a lot of details coming out about that that deal yet i don't know that it it's gonna end up being worth how long they striked over the long run yeah you know the like economic cost of that strike versus the kind of deal that they were able to get it's gonna be a mixed bag at best but it's finally ending finally getting back to a kind of normally functioning hollywood Mm -hmm. with you know i think netflix and the streaming big streaming folks coming out better at the end honestly yeah so mixed bag starbucks however Mm -hmm. is making waves because they are, this is kind of insane. Like, I just don't, I don't understand how Starbucks is so comfortable being in this really anti-union position. Mm-hmm. But it came out, dueling stories came out in the last couple of weeks that they are, one, the uh, union workers are organizing a strike on Red Cup Day. So it is right now happening that uh, thousands of workers are going to work, walk out on a big annual promotion event. For Starbucks, that was very intentional. So if your local Starbucks has unionized employees, you might be affected by this. But another big story was that it came out that they were only going to give pay raises and new benefits to non-unionized employees. So, of course, we're going to have a chain reaction from the unions when Starbucks is basically trying to punish the people who agreed to be a part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. I mean, they, to your point, they've had a long history of just not supporting unions. And, I, you know, we're, we're seeing it. We've been seeing it all year. I think this year in particular, where employees are fed up. They're sick of your shit. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. And so in 3%, I, I saw the, the, the pay increase is what, 3% starting next year. I don't know. Starbucks has so much money. That's it. That's all they can <laughs> afford to give their folks is 3%. I mean, that's basically the cost of inflation. That's yeah. just an inflation adjusted yeah. raise right there. Yeah, yeah, The typical, if like, that, the standard I mean, inflation's raise. been insane. I don't right. even know if that would, at this year, maybe normally, normal year, that would be a cost of adjustment yeah. living. But this year, it's probably not even making up for that. I, I doubt it. But good on them for uh, standing up and saying something. And I think this is going to be their biggest strike, right? That they've had. Uh, I believe so, yet. yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I get it. Yeah. I mean... Just again continues to be kind of a a a year of labor in terms mm-hmm. of so many different unionized employees doing something to push back against the insane expectations of their job yeah. combined with cost of living that has not kept up with things like inflation. Yeah. Pharmacists. Yeah, I think we're going to keep seeing this sort of this power shift moving from leaders to employees. And, you know, we've been saying this for so long. Leaders, you need to listen to your people. And I think at this point, they are going to make you listen to them is is what we're seeing happening. And it it does seem to be affecting change for some of these folks. So, you know, although it is a very industry by industry, I think about what they can win. I mean, we talked about that with the actor strike, although and then on the other side, UAW, I think got some really great concessions and are now saying they're going to go after the teslas of the world and elon musk is basically daring them to do it so i'm sure we're going to be talking about that story but i feel like it's part of this larger (laughs) trend of brands that have traditionally been seen as these like socially responsible progressive engaged inclusive brands before musk went off the deep end i would have put tesla in that camp but now the employees are basically saying, great, you say that you have all these values. Mm-hmm. Why are you treating us like shit? Yeah. One of those companies that's seen union organizing and unionization at some of his stores is REI, who has been pushing back pretty hard on the idea of having unions at its stores. And some employees are, are accusing it of some anti-union behavior. And and there's a few quotes in this Bloomberg article that talks about this, that basically REI is trying to make the case that 
union representation isn't the best path forward and we want all employees treated equally and we are committed to making unions not necessary basically by creating an employee experience that is quote so compelling that the need for a union is not necessary i've seen lots of other companies make this case what do you think about that i get what they're saying and i actually could get even in the mind of a senior leader who could convince themselves of this but do you <laughs> feel like by the time they have to make this argument they've already lost the thread do you know what i mean like if you were really committed to making an employee experience so compelling by the time you have to come out and say that clearly the employee experience has not met that standard yeah i would agree with that yeah i it's it's frustrating to to see this and i agree i think you know they there's probably a lot of work to be done i mean especially if they're at a point where people are considering unionizing something is not happening something's not working where employees right. aren't feeling heard or they're not feeling treated fairly or equitably in some way and so yeah, yeah. i mean i want to be surprised but at the same time it's like we've seen so many progressive quote unquote progressive companies push back on unionization and i you know i think the progressive bit is very external facing it's a, it's often a facade you you pull that first layer off and usually they're still operating like a lot of these other organizations are and yeah. not listening to their people so i mean i get it i want to empathize with the leaders here in that unions are a pain in the ass yeah you know like you spout these values you believe this about the company that you're leading or, or you're part of leadership you want everyone else to believe it too. The problem is that those values aren't always lived in everyday experience of employees as much as you think that they are. Right. And when you lose that kind of frontline perspective of what is the actual experience of our employees, not just what we say the experience is, but what are they actually seeing, feeling, hearing from customers, see, hearing from each other, mm -hmm. that's when you can kind of be like, oh, we aren't actually meeting the standard that we actually say we want to meet. Yeah. And I feel like by the time the, the employees are open to the idea of unionizing, then you've completely lost the thread. You need Absolutely. to just let it happen and deal with the new world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because being seen as anti-union is going to cause you a host of a ton of other problems. <laughs> I have never heard of employees just popping up and being like, we want to unionize, right? They've gone through a process. They've tried to ask for yeah. things. They've tried to negotiate. This has been for boiling time. for years at exactly. this point. Exactly. So I don't know. I, I hear you on empathizing with leaders, but at the same time, this didn't happen overnight. Exactly. So, so you've got to empathize with employees a little more. Yep. Please. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what else happened? So have you heard of the great gloom? I just, I know we, why we have to rebrand every single thing related to hiring and firing is insane oh to me. It's not quiet quitting anymore. Now it's, they aren't quitting. They are staying around and uh -huh. just being miserable. That sounds right. <laughs> that tracks with what I've been hearing. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But apparently this is creating actually a new headache in that like last year em uh, employers were struggling to keep staff. Now they want more people to leave. <laughs> just like because they're miserable or because they can't yeah they're them. miserable there's not turn off turnover to get like new blood that they can hmm. pay less you know like yeah. there's lots of reasons but i just feel like every every week we're reading these stories about like people leaders complaining about oh we're hiring too many people we're not hiring enough people oh people aren't coming to the office oh there are too many people are coming to the office it's just i just i'm tired of it yeah moving on yeah <laughs> Oh, goodness. Oh, did you follow OpenAI's dev conference at all? I've I've popped in and out. I mostly looked at some Twitter threads that summarize some of the new things, but I have definitely been living my best life with this new ChatGPT release. Yeah? It is so cool that you can make your own ChatGPT bots. Have you like, tried it yet? Um, yeah, I've been playing around with it. I'm trying to like test out building some sort of DEI tool. I'll let you know how it goes maybe during Ooh. the next episode. But yeah, super cool stuff. I've been like generating images. Um, you can create like mock website images. You can create logos. It's top notch. I, I'm a fan. It's awesome. I know people are afraid of it, but I I'm loving it. So yeah, I've been playing around quite a bit with it too. I'm yeah. I'm really interested in building. I've been trying to build a Caleb GPT. Ooh, which is basically okay. like <laughs> trying to train it on things that I have written in the yeah, past. Yeah. So that I can basically engage. It's, it's very weird, but I'm going to say engage with myself. 
Yeah. You know, like, have I already written about this? Have I already thought about it? And then yeah. help it create more content along those lines. So it's in your voice. That makes sense. Exactly. You could also do AI voiceovers. I don't know if you know this, but I think it's I, Eleven Labs. <laughs> you can load your I voice have, in there. So I've been I've been looking a lot about those things. You know, just in terms of how they're, especially how they're going to kind of augment or replace the speaking industry. I think there's some case for that. I mean, there's. We, we're just we're still in the wild west. And I think that what was fascinating to me about this news about OpenAI's dev conference is it had a very kind of Apple in the early 2000s vibe when the App Store was kind of just launching. Well, that wasn't early 2000s, but you know what I mean? If we think of G- ChatGPT as the iPod version of where this is going, that means this is kind of the first like revolutionary to be sure in its own way, but also like ultimately crude first version yeah. of something that could be insanely integrated into our economy like the app store is yeah definitely they debuted the news that they're going to actually launch a gpt app store later this month they've already with gpt4 ha- let developers create plugins that let chat mm-hmm. gpt hook into other services so yep. there is a huge gpt and ai based economy starting to bloom out of this that's mm-hmm. and if i'm very curious if open ai stays at the center of it or not the other related news, and it didn't come out of this, but came out a little bit before it, is that OpenAI wants to work with organizations to build new AI training data sets. Hmm. Basically, recognizing that they've been built on largely U.S. and Western-centric media. That and we've talked about this in a lot about building AI in in past episodes. Just how much we're going to build bias right into these things oh, yeah. because of what they're trained on. It's already basically there. saying, yeah, totally. They're basically saying we recognize that and we want to collaborate with third party organizations to build public and private data sets for AI model training. That could be interesting. Mm, It could be. When is it going to happen? It's just I just it drives me absolutely up the wall that it's always an afterthought. It's like, why are you just you you all have been working on this for years. Why are you just now like, oh, yeah, I guess we should consider expanding this thing's knowledge like what (laughs) i will say that sam altman has at least come across as someone who is an adult i don't i do agree with you that there are things they could do ahead of time that they probably should have anticipated and that's that silicon valley mindset of just ship 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 and not think about the the consequences i have a hard time interpreting his call for regulation of the industry he this could and, and his general kind of talk about social responsibility and coming out with this kind of third party data sets like it all sounds great. Mm-hmm. And I want to believe it. Mm-hmm. But it also could be him trying to build a moat around OpenAI's centrality here and basically become, you know, one of the next big tech companies yeah. by regu- by getting out ahead of regulation, basically trying to build regulation exactly how they want to. Because mm-hmm. I do think there is a stifling of competition that is happening with ChatGPT being so big. Yeah. already yeah you know for sure we'll see what happens i i hope they they follow through on that i think it's very necessary there are certainly many times when i'm working on projects with chat gpt and i am like this is not okay <laughs> like <laughs> these assumptions <laughs> these limited data sets you're leveraging it's it's very clear and apparent so yeah like it comes yeah. out really you're like oh god why are you saying that yeah yeah not not a fan so oh fascinating yeah Last story before we get into our deep dives that we've got to cover is just the Israel-Hamas war continues to be horrific, couldn't mm-hmm. dominate the news cycle, but it is creeping into our corporate environments in fascinating ways. I think the biggest one in the last few months has just been how companies have handled how they weigh in and yeah. when they weigh in and talk about this. We we talked about this many times. I don't know we need to talk about it again. It's just, sure. it continues to be a thing that leaders don't understand how to wrap their head around and is very difficult. And like we have said, it's much better to <laughs> decide upon how you're going to react to these things before they happen, not in the moment. That's when you start stumbling. Yeah. The one fascinating story that I wanted to talk to you about was how it is rocking Google in particular. Mm-hmm. Google has prided itself on letting its employees have a voice, letting its employees kind of direct the uh, company. Yep. I will say it doesn't have a great track record of actually listening to those voices, including when they've worked with military and certain governments. Mm-hmm. But now employees that are expressing support for Palestinians are complaining that they're facing hostility within the workplace. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of a microcosm of 
things that are playing out across universities in the United States, but also across other workplaces and honestly in our political system. It's just Google has tried to be a model for how to do this kind of employee activism. And this is really, really testing that model. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said, right, about, and we've talked about this, right? A lot of organizations are often reacting to things. They haven't really decided what their culture is and how they're going to navigate political issues, societal issues. And now that we're here, we have this very big problem, this horrific problem that's ongoing. And people are spending a lot of time in the workplace, as always, and they have their own individual beliefs. And if you haven't already created a culture where people are safe to express those things or have discussions or not, because maybe your culture is we don't want to touch any of that. And this is not a place to discuss that. That's one choice. But again, because we haven't established those ways of working, those internal cultural norms, it does cause conflict and it can cause things to fester. And then you've yeah. got the, what is it? The great, not the great resignation. What did you call it? The <laughs> like, great gloom. The great gloom, right? Yeah. So all those things combined <laughs> are just a recipe for disaster. It's just, it's a yeah. hot mess out here. So we don't need to go down the Israel Hamas rabbit hole because there's just so much coming out. And it's also tragic and so complicated. And we've talked yeah. about it so many times already. But I would like to just reinforce how much the shitty media environment we have now is starting to affect this. I think it's driving a lot of the conflict on college campuses. I think it's Mm -hmm. driving a lot of the conflict in workplaces. And I bring that up because there was, of course, a new report that said X is failing to remove 98% of misinformation and hate fuel posts related to Israel and Gaza war. Hmm. Interesting. 98%. My one consternation about that is that X has a declining influence on our society. (laughs) And I'm more worried probably about TikTok and Instagram misinformation than I am X. Yeah. Way to go, Musk. Your your removal of trust and safety is doing exactly what we all expected. I'm not surprised at all. At all. Social media. Gotta love it. Yeah, or not. I don't (laughs) don't really love it now. Yeah. Yeah, it's just such a clusterfuck. Yeah. All right. What are you deep diving on for today? Psychological safety. So I think very much along the lines of some of what we've touched on in the news today and what we kind of opened with on today's episode. So really just wanted to I think it's it's been some months I was kind of skimming through our our show notes and it, I think the last time I really talked about psychological safety was back in May and it was very specific to Wow, has it been that long yeah it was very specific I mean I may have touched on it knowing me but I didn't do a deep dive or haven't done a deep dive on it and that one was very specific to creating psychological safety for black women there was an article about that definitely oh, go yeah, back and check that. out that episode yeah. But yeah, I want, to, I want to talk more broadly about this idea of psychological safety and how important it is to prioritize right now. I want to talk about the idea of right to repair. And this may be something that people are familiar with mm-hmm. or not, but the right to repair movement is the idea that when we pay $1,000 for a cell phone, we should be able to repair it ourselves or pay whoever we want to repair it and not have to take it just to Apple to be replaced or only that they can actually touch it and make it better. Software locks are often obstacles for this, but also hardware, you know, locks. There's just, there's so many ways that companies try to lock this down and basically say like, you can't tinker with it. But Apple's probably the most notorious one. There are, but this is bleeding into into other areas. Software, you know, and and hardware continues to seep into everything. This is bleeding into other areas. And so it's a, fascinating philosophical conversation that I think we need to unpack. Uh, I'm ready for this one. I <laughs> This is so funny. I, I literally, I don't know what I did or how, but I dropped my phone the other day and the entire backside of it is shattered despite it being oh. in this case. I was like, how? Really? Even in a case? That's terrible. I, you know, and so I, I went on to my Verizon account because that's where I got my iPhone and I have a Shurion, if you're familiar, the little insurance provider. And I remember I've had it for eternity and I remember you would just like submit your little claim and they would, you know, ask you some questions and ship you a new phone. Now you do that. And then they're also like, and by the way, you need to pay a hundred dollar deductible. I was like, excuse me. Do you know how expensive this device is? And all it is is the back, just the glass, which I could probably go 
down the street in my neighborhood and pay like 35 bucks, right? Or 40 bucks to get yeah. the glass repaired. But I think that might compromise the warranty or something with Apple or Verizon. So curious to exactly. learn more about this, this right to repair. I did not know that was a thing. Yeah. Well, let's start there. Yeah, let's do it. So the right to repair movement isn't a new thing. I think it has been around as long as, uh, you know, there has been tech that has tried mm-hmm. to get us to not repair it ourselves. And I think that it is a it's part of a broader movement, I would argue, that has gone back generations to people who, you know, I remember my grandfather used to say shit like this, like back in our day, we would fix things, <laughs> you know, right. and we're just so used to being taught that we just need to replace everything. Yeah. And so I think there's there's definitely roots in other types of just depression era, like conservatism and small C conservatism, mm-hmm. instead of just this leap toward after the 60s and, you know, the advertising movement really kicking in just sure. buying new things as a practice. But it, it really has, from a legal perspective in the last 10 years, picked up mm-hmm. and, and started to be actually signed into law that, hey, people should be able to repair a $1,000 device that they yeah. buy. One of the most recent examples of this is a, a right to repair bill in California, which was signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom. Mm-hmm. It guarantees everyone access to parts, tools, and manuals needed to fix their electronic devices, something that industry-backed research shows can reduce waste and carbon emissions, but companies like Apple have fought aggressively against. You can kind of see this from Apple's perspective, right? If they have all of this proprietary software and all this proprietary hardware baked into this device, which, by the way, is a pretty amazing innovative computer in the palm of our hands in this tiny, tiny little package, I totally get why they wouldn't want someone they don't know or trust, Mm -hmm. basically like a third-party fix-it shop down the street with a bootleg Apple logo, (laughs) like (laughs) like a couple of we got in Chicago, opening these things up and tinkering with them and messing something up, and then the phone doesn't work anymore, and then you're on the phone with Apple trying to say, my phone doesn't work anymore, and they're like, well... We can't actually see what chain of events led to the phone not working anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like we don't we don't actually know the source of it because you've been opening it up and playing around with it. So you can kind of see it from their perspective about we want to protect the integrity and the user experience of our products. Mm -hmm. And we are the only ones that are the top experts in what actually happens behind the scenes on these products. But. It's hard to argue that we shouldn't have at least the right to mess up <laughs> mess up the devices. Yeah. And the reason why the research shows that it'll reduce waste or carbon emissions is because if we can if we can genuinely fix things, mm-hmm. we don't have to rebuy them. Yeah, if that makes sense. We our things will last a lot longer. Yeah. In theory. In theory, yes. yes. So interesting. I I was just kind of skimming through and didn't realize apparently New York was the first state to enact a right to repair law that covers consumer electronics. And that was just last year. And this also impacts cars as well, which is interesting because I remember a few episodes ago when we were talking about like data privacy and how cars are now just these oversized laptops, right? Yes, yes. And so similar thing where there's like a monopoly over the repairs and, you know, manufacturers controlling their parts. Yeah. So this is this is how this started to creep into other industries in a really tangible way. Mm -hmm. So cars, we talked a few weeks ago, are basically smart computers with combustion engines now, even if they're not EVs. EVs are almost fully just computers that we are running, you know, with the steering wheel. But even even just kind of your normal combustion engine the newer models have a lot of software built in that runs all of their functions. Mm-hmm. And so you take this to, I mean, cars might be the quintessential example of the right to repair, right? Like yeah. we don't we don't buy our car and then by default take it to the kind of manufacturer service center. That's what they want you to do, to be very clear. Yeah. And it will void your warranty if you don't do that in certain cases. Mm-hmm. There are motivations, there are carrots and sticks there. Yep. But the average person you know, finds the mechanic they trust and takes it there for kind of the basic maintenance at least. Yep. But 
with smart computers now being built in to how these cars run, Mm -hmm. your average kind of Joe mechanic on the street doesn't necessarily know how to repair it or how to even diagnose the problem because they can't access the software on the back end to be able to tell like the manufacturers can. Mm -hmm. So even cars are moving in this kind of direction of not just anyone can repair it and this right to repair movement is going to start to come and head for this sector. Right. Now my brain is like, are we going to start seeing like those, what do they call it? I think the company's called iFixit. Are they going to start like servicing cars now, like EVs? That would be really interesting. Right. You know, they probably have the But do you want, that's, this is where it gets interesting when you're stuck in the middle as a consumer. Because I think by default, I am sympathetic to the right to repair movement. And it does seem insane that we pay so much money and have so few options about how to fix things and repair them. But also, if I'm driving a $100,000 EV, I don't necessarily want to go down the street to the guy who doesn't have <laughs> any clue dollars. how this thing runs. Right. <laughs> or similar for my iPhone. I don't, I kind of don't trust anyone but the genius bar to really diagnose what's happening or give me. So I, I'm conflicted here as a consumer, you know, yeah. about what actually is, as the world gets more complicated, more tech enabled, what actually is my best option here? It does right. seem crazy that my best option would be oh, actually, we're just going to have to replace this completely. Mm-hmm. Really? That, that's it? We don't have any other options? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I also, it makes me think about people that, you know, we live in major cities, but if you're outside of a major city and you have an iPhone or you have a car, an EV, and it you run into some issue, how does it get repaired, right? If you're unable to go just down the street, let's say you have to travel a couple of hours to get a, a repair or you have to yeah. wait days for them to ship you a replacement device. Like how it, it, it you know, it does create space for those folks. Well, but I'm in the same boat as you. I'd rather go. I'm, I don't go anywhere else. If something's wrong with my phone, I go right to Verizon or Apple. And I'm like, hey, I, I pay, I've paid enough over the years. Do you do your thing. Wave your magic wands. Right. I don't <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere else. So well, and they incentivize you with the insurance plan. You were talking about with Verizon or Apple Care Plus, Apple Care, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of like yeah. they're insurance plans, Mm -hmm. which I mean, if we look at it on the face value, we're actually paying thousands of dollars for these products and then paying the same company to ensure that they don't break, you know, like, it's not great, the situation we find ourselves in. The the way that some EV makers like Rivian are getting around that exact Mm -hmm. problem is they will actually have regional repair people who actually come to you. I don't know because I'm not a Rivian owner how quickly that happens. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do know I've seen some like promotional videos and stuff. They don't have their local, and a lot of EV makers are like this, their kind of local shop that you can take it into. Sure. So they have to come to you. I wonder what the carbon footprint is on that. Well, if they're driving an EV to you, yeah, then nothing in theory. Okay. Well, I could see Driving it. an EV to you to fix your EV. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Again, right. this is all in theory. I, I think right? we're in the kind of... <laughs> I think I've used the term Wild West like four times on this podcast <laughs> yes. so far as we talk about this. It sounds right. But it does feel like the like the expectations are shifting a little bit about how, about where we make these purchases, how we are going to maintain them over time mm-hmm. as they get a little bit more complicated, you know, like yeah. software driven as opposed to being just like hardware that your kind of average person can understand how it works. Definitely. Yeah. You know, if this isn't like your grandpa understanding how to fix a combusted engine, like it's gotten yep. complicated. Yeah. Also, a lot of, lot of shout outs to grandpa. I don't know. This is a weird. Listen, weird, uh, that, it's tropes. funny. My grandfather did actually. Well, my mo- mother's dad did work on cars. We had a garage in the back of their house and people come through and yep. get their repairs. It was like the nice. neighborhood spot. So, you know, but see, that's what I'm saying. That was yeah. that generation, right? You fix things. You don't, you don't, see don't just that go out and days. buy. You don't get one problem. And then you're like, well, I was due for a new version of this thing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'd love to hear what other people think if they've had these kind of right to repair encounters, whether whether with the Apple or Android or whatever or other kind yeah. of products, because I am interested in how this is creeping into the rest of the economy. Definitely. I, one side note I have to give about this, unrelated to right to repair, but but is related to Apple's supply chain. I found out this week mm-hmm. that Apple uses its kind of last mile delivery service when you say local delivery, mm-hmm. when you're getting like a new iPhone. They use Uber Eats as their delivery company. Huh. Uber Eats. Do you know why Uber Eats has been in the news? 
lately. Theft. People just steal food. (laughs) This is actually this isn't just an Uber Eats problem. This is all those kind of delivery services. I've been reading so much. If you get if you get DoorDash, if you get Uber Eats, whatever, and it shows up and they're like, oh, they forgot my fries or oh, they forgot my drink. No, they didn't forget it. Your driver reached into the bag and took it with basically zero consequences because when you call, they're going to blame the restaurant and you're going to get a reimbursement from the restaurant. They're not going to know where it disappeared. They're just going to think they made a mistake. And you still don't have your fries. Exactly. (laughs) So the reason I bring this up is because, of course, people are getting iPhones stolen (laughs) by these Uber Eats drivers. It makes sense. Wow. I, I had a friend this week get an iPhone stolen because the Uber, I mean, imagine getting the head of the Uber Eats driver. You're like out making deliveries and all of a sudden it's go to the Apple store and you're yeah. picking up like thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. And you're like, why am I oh. driving for Uber Eats? I just picked up an unlocked iPhone. It's literally your pay for the day. If not more, <laughs> more honestly, way more. Yeah. Where you live and where you're Ubering. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was a weird choice given how focused on supply chain like yeah. Apple has been and how unfocused on it Uber Eats. Like they literally have no products. Right. They, right. You know what I mean? Like they're not, that's not that's not what they're in the business. in. anyway, times weird choice, you. Apple. <laughs> oh, All right. Tell me tell me about psychological safety. Yeah. Please. Dying oh, yeah. to know because I've oh, run into this myself. Like, how much time do we have? I'll make it quick. Um, <laughs> I actually think I'm gonna I'm gonna create an e-course soon on psych safety because it's 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 been oh. in high demand in terms of me doing workshops. A lot of my workshops have been centered around it. And some days I'm like, there is some baseline information that people could gather from a quick e-course, and then I go in and <laughs> fill in the gaps for you, right? Um, oh, I love that idea. Right. So psychological safety for anyone that's not familiar. I know it sounds like this buzzword, another one of those words that we throw around. But by definition, it means that we as a group have a shared belief that we can take interpersonal risks. Right. So, you know, within amongst our team, let's say the 18 Coffees team, if we're having meetings or interacting with each other, I can feel comfortable speaking up. Caleb, you can share ideas that may be opposing to mine. Robin may admit to a mistake, whatever it is, right? So we're very open and honest with each other. And there's no fear of consequences. There's no fear of me being humiliated or retaliated against or made to feel ashamed about my thoughts or beliefs. And one of the really important components of psychological safety is that it centers around having a growth mindset. So if I make a Mm. mistake, I can actually leverage that as a learning opportunity, right? Instead of looking at it as, oh, I'm so stupid, this, that. Okay, so I I fucked up. Like, how can we actually leverage this, look at the process behind it, and make sure we avoid it moving forward or try something different? So that's the concept of psychological safety. It is a very, I mean, when you think about it, it's okay, that can mean a lot of things. But in the context of a workplace, it is something that really does help established team dynamics and it really ties directly to an organization's culture so whether or not your your overall culture within your organization centers around having and leveraging a growth mindset is going to be tied to psychological safety and i wanted to talk about this because early on i mentioned i've been doing all of these focus groups and talking to different employee groups uh, mostly employee resource groups i've also been doing some one-on-one conversations which I find to be more effective, especially if it's a smaller organization, because, you know, you get people to sign up for for a group, a discussion. It's pretty clear who was there if you go based off of identity and you have, I don't know, two Latino women and you know that the Latino group had five people show up. You're like, oh, you were there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So I say that in case people are getting ideas about doing focus groups and one on ones. You should, but you should know you know, how to actually do them in a safe way. So if you need help, hi, you can email me. Um, But yeah, so I've been doing these groups and while they're really helpful for helping collect qualitative insight, they've just been so heavy and emotional. And from a lot of them, I've realized that there is a lack of psychological safety amongst their teams because there is no reason that some, that people are sort of holding out and waiting to get to these focus groups to share some of this information that they're disclosing. These are things that they should have felt comfortable telling their managers. Right. And so, you know, 
For example, I had a conflict with someone on my team. They yelled at me. Why weren't you comfortable telling your manager this three months ago when it happened and you're now showing up and talking about it here, right? Mm. That tells me there is low psychological safety because you don't feel comfortable enough and there's a lack of trust, right? And to kind of differentiate the two. Yeah, when when we think about trust, it's more of a one-on-one, right? I trust that you, Caleb, are going to do something in return. You trust that I'm going to stick to my word and follow through. Psychological safety is more of a group belief. So you can think of it as like trust amplified. And so, yeah, it just, it has me just questioning, are leaders even thinking about this? And if not, why, right? What's stopping you? Because, yeah, you know, again, we keep coming back to this idea of if your people are not happy, if they are not equipped with the tools they need, your organization's going to fall apart. Who the hell's going to work there? <laughs> like, how are you going to, AI is advanced, but it's not there yet that you can replace your whole team with, with bots, yeah. right? So, well, I mean, you would, in my experience, you would still have people who'd work for you, but they work for you out of fear. And yeah. they're in a, in a fear driven environment, we kind of emotionally shut down and our creativity and our curiosity shuts down. And we just kind of like do the bare minimum that's yeah. not going to get us yelled at. And by the way, we're probably only there because we're afraid of not having a job or we're afraid of the external consequences of, you know what I mean? I think employers, especially the shitty ones, really count on that fear of not of not having employment, of not having income for how they, you know, treat their employees. Yeah. And it's a very, very real fear. I mean, especially if you, you know, are your only source, that's your only source of income or if you are the primary provider for your family or someone's sick, you're sick, you need those benefits, right? And so you're going to stay because you need that out of fear, to your point. And that's just no way to work. And that just, it doesn't help overall morale. It is actually detrimental to people's health, both mental and physical health effects. I mean, your cortisol levels are constantly up because you're stressed, or you're just feeling down and depressed all the time, which leads people to take time off and medical leaves. And you know, so While this is a human issue and we should be creating psychologically safe spaces for the moral good, if that's not convincing you, there is a business imperative here, right? You are going to lose money because people are not working at their highest potential. They're taking time off. They're wasting your money, right? So yeah, just trying to put some reasons out there that might resonate with leaders because I know sometimes I'm like, well, your people are hurting and they're like, ah, well... Look at the look, look. We have we have to pay these things. We have to do this. And I'm like, okay, well, th- the money you need, right, is is going down the drain because your employees are suffering right now. So, all right, I've I've complained enough. I want to talk about some solutions before we wrap <laughs> up because <laughs> now that you're now that you're getting the picture, right? There are a number of things that we can do to build trust and psychological safety. When it comes to trust, again, we're thinking about one-on-one. So really understanding how people like to work, understanding boundaries, most importantly, setting expectations, right? You can't expect to build trust with people, especially if you're a leader or manager and you're like, okay, go do the thing. And you haven't defined the, the what the thing is or how it's going to be measured. How do we actually measure the success of a project or of someone fulfilling their role? You have to be clear and aligned on what that looks like, right? A lot of people go out and they give feedback and they comment on, on people's performance and projects but there were never any expectations set around that. And so you're just kind of throwing things at this person, which is pretty unfair. Being open to having people give you feedback as a leader is really important when it comes to building trust. And I think one thing is I find that leaders are often nervous or fearful of receiving feedback. And very much so. Yeah, a lot of us are, but it's okay to receive feedback and be like, I don't actually want to implement that or change that or I don't agree with that. It's okay to disagree with feedback, but being receptive to it is is important. Actually, just a, a study that came out a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago that said a third of corporate leaders are primarily motivated by fear. Mm-hmm. Isn't that insane? And it says, the study said it creates less efficient and less psychologically safe work environments. Direct quote, Oof. that costs nearly $36 billion annually in lost productivity. There you have it. (laughs) And we have so many studies like that that just reinforce the importance of all of this. And yeah, I mean, fear is going to keep people in the workplace, whether or not they're going to be, to your point, performing well. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. 
there are a lot of things that we can do to build trust one-on-one, but then as leaders, it's also important that we are setting the tone for psychological safety. So similarly, you need to set expectations for your team. You need to create space for people as well. One thing I talk about often is this idea that, you know, the loudest voice in the room or in a meeting is going to be heard for first. Their ideas are going to be pushed forward first because they're going to advocate for themselves. They're going to be more vocal. And then people that tend to be more introverted on the quieter side are often left behind. Again, you are losing out because you're not leveraging the full potential of your people, right? Yeah. Often the quiet folks have some great ideas. There's actually a book called Quiet by Susan Cain that yep. talks about the the power of introverts in the workplace and how they often go overlooked. As an introvert myself, I found that <laughs> very, uh, <laughs> very enlightening. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard, right? Especially if you're on the quieter side. I, I think early on in my career, I was much quieter and like I would have ideas, but I'm like, oh, that's dumb. I shouldn't say that out loud. And I would hold back. And I think that's really unfortunate because eventually I, I had some experiences where we did actually leverage some of my ideas. And I was like, oh, I probably could have presented this ahead of time, like weeks ago, right? <laughs> You've got some good ideas. I've heard some. Thank you. So Thank I can you. I can validate that. I think one of the problems also is people won't, won't speak up. Mm-hmm. But then when they do speak up, you have to dig a little deeper than what they're saying. Because yeah. I don't know that, I mean, part of this research on the fear-based leadership was that people who are leading from fear wouldn't say that they're leading from fear. Mm-hmm. You actually have to look at their behavior and ask them to to rate how often they are doing fear-based types of activities. Mm-hmm. So we need multiple data points to be able to kind of diagnose these kind of psychological safety issues. Because actually, yeah. again, if people don't have psychological safety, you can't count on them to say that. Right. This might be conscious or unconscious, you know? Right. And if they don't have it or they haven't experienced it, they may not even be able to articulate it. And so sometimes you need someone right. that is knowledgeable around the topic to, to support. One of my favorite tools for kind of diagnosing psychological safety is doing a team health assessment, which mm-hmm. is usually a facilitated conversation where you give people the opportunity to reflect both on, you know, it, and you can take on different approaches. It could be self-reflection. So sort of what you were talking about. So you're actually like, okay, was I fearful in this moment? Have there been times when I was afraid to share something or speak up? Why was it that the case? What what were some factors or actions or behaviors that I felt from other people or experienced from other people hmm. that prevented yeah. me from speaking up? We could also go in the direction of asking specific questions around the team. You know, what are our meetings? Do I feel comfortable sharing my ideas, giving my team members feedback? So you really zoom in and give people the opportunity to reflect and to share their observations, typically in an anonymous manner. So I like to use a variety of tools that allow people to share those thoughts without attaching their names to it. And then you you work to find patterns, right? Are there similar themes that we can identify and have conversations around that and figure out what are some potential solutions? And by doing that, you then start to establish here are ways of working together, which can start to shape your company culture if you haven't done that already. So if one thing we notice is that people are, I don't know, not encouraging learning from mistakes, but people kind of berate folks when they admit to a mistake, and we several people have noticed that pattern, okay, what might we do differently moving forward? And how can this become a norm for us? And you know, yeah. sometimes you may have to remind each other of those norms, but that is the point of establishing them so that you keep or sort of maintain that psychological safety. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think my takeaway was hire Adriel. Yeah, that's what that yeah. was the that was kind of the main point. Yeah. I feel like you you have a great <laughs> point of view on this. You do this work all the time. Exactly. Again, this work takes a lot of intentionality to unpack. Like that's that's kind of why I want people to take away from it. It's not easy to you might be able to see it. You might get hints of it on the surface, but diagnosing yeah. what's really going on, getting to the heart of how to create such psychological safety. This creates or this needs a lot of nuance and a it lot does. of like intentionality. It does. And it sounds like a lot. And it is work, I will say that. But when you have the right support, you'll be able to do the diagnosis and then figure out how to prioritize what really matters for people and to bake it into your current work. It doesn't have to feel like this huge thing that you're taking on. It can simply just be integrated into what you're already doing through small changes. Right. Yep. But first, it takes leaders getting out of their own heads, not being afraid to engage with it. There you go. And- you know, just don't don't take it personally, man. Don't take you. it personally. It's not you. It's just it might just, be you. 
It, but well, even yeah, if it is, <laughs> like that's true. It, it might, might be at least you. partially you. But that's kind of the problem. Is like you need to. We need some emotional self awareness here, and, and yes. we don't teach that necessarily. So go to therapy, come back. Great. It's so like psychological safety is what we're saying. There you go. All right, Adriel, what are you bringing to us this week that is some good news? Make it be um, good. Yeah, I will. I guess it's debatable if it's good, <laughs> but I saw, <laughs> I went and I saw the Marvels last night. Oh, which was what'd you exciting. think? So I, I enjoyed it, but I often enjoy the Marvel universe in general. I think this was probably one of my least favorites. I was talking to my friend after we saw it and I was like, it felt like Spy Kids <laughs> in a way. If you, if you <laughs> remember funny. Spy Kids, that's like a millennial staple, right? Um, so it, it gave me Spy Kids vibes. It had it had some moments where I was like, this movie is not long enough for you to need this sort of filler. I'm going to say that without giving it away. Mm. And also lots of moments where I was like, are these writers on acid or what is going on here? <laughs> like, it was just, it was out there. It was definitely out there. I, I also saw the movie, so I do know which scenes you're referencing yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. we, can't, we can't talk about them without giving it away because yeah. they are kind of insane. Exactly. But I did enjoy the, uh, no surprise, the diversity of the cast I thought was fantastic. That was nice. A little disappointed to still see a lead be a white woman again. Progress. Yeah. But yeah, I, I there were some new faces in terms of, of talent that I'd never seen before. And then, of course, some folks that I know, like Tiana Paris, who I love so much and think is incredible. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was a solid movie. I don't know that I uh, another friend of mine was like, I want to go back and see it again. And I was like, ah, I think I'll wait and watch it at home if I need if I really feel so inclined <laughs> to see it a second time. But a nice escape from reality for an hour and 45 minutes. I also saw it and I was also disappointed in some of the plot holes. Like it was yeah. just it was like some things where it was just like not really explained well at all. And I was like, wait, why is this happening? You just brushed over. It's so like a very major like reason in the plot. But like you mm -hmm. acted like I'm stupid and I don't really need to know what happened. Like there's a continuity there that I feel like early Marvel would would have not let slide. Do you sure. know what I mean? In terms yeah. of like trying to give some explanation about why things are happening. I felt like that happened multiple times. Yeah. I'll just give one example that doesn't give too much away. There's a part where like a spaceship is, or not a spaceship, like a space station is like evacuated and it's an emergency. And then later there's just like people on the space station again. And I was like, what, what was the emergency? <laughs> I don't like, there was no clear explanation about like why it needed to be evacuated. Yeah. It was just, uh, I don't know. Anyway, so I, I, the quality I don't think was there. And then I went back and I was watching some older Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Phase 1, Phase 2, like some of the yeah. first kind of classics. And it was so good. Yeah. They're still yeah. so good. They hold up really well. Yeah. And the you can just, the difference is astounding. This movie did not make as good of money. Like it was one of the worst openings mm -hmm. from in Marvel history. I heard about that. And I think that. that people are talking about whether or not that is part of just Marvel fatigue in general or whether mm -hmm. they kind of like people having to watch the streaming shows to understand what was going on, which is, is a fair point because there's two like major characters introduced in this movie yeah. that you don't get the background of unless you've also watched the, these streaming shows. Right, right. So there's a lot of reasons why you could say that. But my biggest qualm is I just felt like the plot wasn't that good. Yeah, like they're just there's they could have done so much with this. And to your point, we're finally at the point where we're introducing diversity. We got through all the flagship Marvel characters that are all white men. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting into some more diverse diversity. And now we're losing the quality. It makes yeah. me upset. Anyway, as a, as a longtime Marvel. Fan. <laughs> now you're making me want to go back and go through the, the catalog. Maybe I'll do that during the holidays. I need some they're like so eminently rewatchable. Yeah, yeah. Lately, I don't know. Movies have not given me that that sort of energy as of late. So, yeah. and I could be part I, of the all the strikes and all of that too. So, oh yeah, for sure. Just yeah. pure escapism. I think that's why you brought it up as a good good thing, right? You're just like, yeah, just it was just nice for some to, escapism. I was gone, and then I was like, no, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the best movie, but it was just nice to like be away from yeah. this planet for a moment. So, yeah. be literally be away from this planet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's funny. 
Well, my one good thing this week is pretty random, but I will I'm going to explain it. Okay. Uh, it, so there's a trend with grocery stores actually getting rid of their self checkouts. Mm-hmm. And these self checkouts have been around a long, long time. But this the specific example called out in this article is Tesco in Northwest London. Basically, like going back to human human people at the at the registers. There's yeah. a lot of reason for this theft. People not knowing how to use it. Mm-hmm. A lot of just complaints about, hey, what happened to like actual people, one-to-one interaction, especially mm-hmm. now that we don't get out of the house as much. Like we're in front of screens all the time and now we're going and our checkout experiences in front of screens without humans. Yeah. So I'm calling this a good thing because I actually want, like in the few times where I want to interact with a human, the purchasing experience is actually usually one of them. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. always. Let me. I will. I will say it's not always. It depends on speed. How many things am I buying? How complicated is this process? Am I going to have questions at the at the other end? Yeah. But I just. I'm going to say this is a this is a win for humanity, and I hope I hope <laughs> that the next thing to fall are those fucking automated systems that you have to call to get a human on the other line. They are the bane of my existence. <laughs> I hate them. I hate them. I feel that. I felt that in my soul. I, I completely agree. Um, they're the worst. I, I usually just keep pressing one or zero. Or Same. Saying, I'm just like zero. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like they hate me. They hate me because I'm, I I'm not I will just give a this. quick negative shout out to Walgreens, which I usually have a pretty decent experience with. But lately, they, my son's medication has mm-hmm. been pretty low in stock. And we've mm-hmm. had to go around to multiple Walgreens to like find where it is and then go to that. It's a pain in the ass. It doesn't have anything to do with Walgreens. But my qualm with Walgreens is every time we call one of those pharmacies to say, hey, do you have this in stock? We get met with those automated systems. Yep. And I have to be like... They're like, do you want this or do you want this? I'm like, no, I just want to talk to a pharmacist. Yes, like, exactly. I'll, and it's basically it like gatekeeps it. It's I'll let I'll let you talk to a pharmacy once you tell me what you need from the yes. pharmacy. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> just let me talk to a pharmacist. Exactly. And I, you know that probably ties into the recent strikes that they had too, right? Where they've been feeling overworked. It's and I get it, but it's frustrating from your standpoint as a consumer because it's like I actually need to talk to a human and someone that knows what I'm trying to get to and it would be so much quicker as well if I could speak to a person versus yeah. this automated system that half the time is, did you say this or this? And you're like constantly repeating oh, and trying to articulate worst. it for, you know? Um, so I get it. I, I feel that 100%. And I agree with the self-checkout situation. I was at a grocery store recently and it was fully self... I was actually at Aldi's and it was fully self-checkout. They recently converted and there was this older woman in an electric scooter and she was like struggling to reach over to scan her stuff and there was no one there. So I'm like, clear, I'm not going to let you struggle. So I go over and like help. And 10 minutes later, someone that actually works there is like shuffling over like, do you need help? And I'm like, no, I apparently work here now. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> but it's, it's not accessible. It doesn't, don't you feel like vaguely dystopian when you run into those situations where there's like no people and it's all you and machines? Like we talked a lot about technology kind of augmenting the human experience and there's ways to find efficiencies and there's ways mm-hmm. to make the experience better. But just outright replacement of human connection is happening. Yeah. And I don't love it. So yeah. my one good thing is just a tiny step back into human connection even if it's just at the grocery store for a few minutes no it matters it matters it's i i thought about that as as you were saying it from like the loneliness epidemic standpoint too right if your only connection when you go out after your remote job is like running to your grocery store and it's automated it's just like an extension of that you don't even get to say hi to your local cashier or whomever and that's pretty sad and unfortunate so yeah i'm here with you on that one Bring back humans. Bring back humans. And on that note, that's a great note to end on. Yes. Bring back humans <laughs> and make them make better Marvel movies. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you mo- so much for listening. We will be back next week for a special Thanksgiving episode, I guess. <laughs> like, I don't know what's going to be special other than that's the week of Thanksgiving. We're going to figure out a way to make it special. Gratitude. Gratitude episode of Leadership. Like and... 
We'll be back next week. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com and find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership.